Warning. Growth is a material process which transforms the planet through the ever-expanding use of land, water, and resources. Growth is a material process which threatens to undermine the ecological foundations of growth itself. Welcome, everybody, to the Seriously Wrong Podcast. It's great to be with you here today. Uh, this is Sean, and uh, that was Aaron. Yeah, this is Aaron. It is great to be here. It's great to be growing together with you all. Uh, right, infinitely growing. As we all know, humans eventually grow to be 300 or 400, even 500 feet tall before they die, because growth is natural and growth is good. Infinite growth is natural and good. I was thinking more like when I said we're all growing here today, like I'm done growing as far as I know physically. I meant more intellectually growing. And but even that I don't think can be infinite because, you know, you have a finite amount of time in your life, a finite amount of energy to dedicate to reading things, to understanding things. Eventually we all pass on. So I don't even think you can infinitely grow in knowledge and wisdom and stuff yeah I, I also i think at a certain point your brain starts making less connections gets more efficient at making key connections based on repetitive life experience so like our brain capacity peaks pretty young in our lives so it's it's all rearranging after that and you can do great stuff by rearranging don't get me wrong but the brain doesn't infinitely grow like an economy does yeah, or the amount of connections in your neurons doesn't infinitely grow either. Uh, it seems like, yeah, the only thing that can infinitely grow is economies. Yeah, that just works perfectly. Yeah, it's a cool thing about economies is the way they buck the trend on that one. <laughs> and you can just infinitely do it forever. Before we get started, we've got a great interview today with Aaron Van Singen about degrowth, the political perspective, and the book that he's a co-author of, The Future is Degrowth, A Guide to a World Beyond Capitalism. Uh, but before that, I think we should do a little fashion update. We should check our listeners in with, you know, a lot of time you hear us, it sounds like disembodied voices. I'll be the first to admit it. <laughs> <laughs> it's big of you. But we're actually full human bodies and we, uh, we wear clothes. We wear clothes. And each week we're going to be trying to, in Wrong Boys Fashion Corner, highlight some of our style choices. So typically I just wear like jeans and like a t-shirt that's usually what i'm wearing but this week we decided to do something a little different we're doing a sort of cool sean and cool aaron dress up yeah. day so we're both wearing sunglasses indoors at night right now yes. uh full leather outfit uh with some spikes particularly spikes on aaron's outfit which is a little bit more of a hard edge kind of yeah i like the look thing. of the studs and uh there's some cool patches too for like hardcore bands and uh political statements as well on yeah my, patches. mine's more of like i've got a fictional sports team across the back the scorpions it's more of kind of like a heartthrob thing i've got an earring yeah total heartthrob vibes i i would have said the same thing so he's got a little more edge i've got a little more softness but i think it's a complimentary duo and that's our fit for the week but if you must know while i was interviewing aaron van singen i was wearing sweatpants 
peel back the curtain. That's what it's really like. Not every day is cool, Sean. No, yeah, but it takes effort to get cool uh, for the day, and you don't you don't do that every day, or else it's not special. Absolutely. So yeah, on the subject of growth, I mean, going into this, what were your vibes on growth and degrowth? There's a lot of misconceptions that exist around this field and, and debates that happen around it. Uh, yeah, I think, well, just going into this episode, I feel like I've, I had a lot of the misconceptions already kind of dispelled over the years, but I'd say like a few years ago, my perception of degrowth was mostly negative, mostly associated, not like super negative. Like they have a good point about, I always kind of like the line, you can't have infinite growth on a finite planet. But I did, I, I associated the degrowth movement with a kind of like downer, like, oh, we all have to live horrible lives from now on and just make things worse. And isn't that a great political movement? Let's make things worse for everyone because we have to uh, <laughs> support us. And I was like, I don't, I don't think that's a good pitch and I don't think it's true. So I don't really like this idea, but having come into contact with more degrowth ideas over time, and especially now hearing this interview, uh, I feel like I've been pretty well disabused of a lot of those perceptions. Yeah. One of the things that they quote in the book, there's a, a French degrowth slogan, fewer transactions, more relations which I really like. And French is a little better. It rhymes. Moins de bien, plus de lien. If you have any critiques of Sean's French accent, please leave those in the comments. Thank you. I took um, a few years of French classes in Canadian elementary school, but I stopped taking them as soon as I was allowed to stop taking them, which I regret in retrospect because I could have could have landed that a little better. But fewer transactions, more relations. Uh, it's a really beautiful idea. The idea that Degrowth is primarily about the economic realm of transactions. It's not about the realm of vibrant, rich lives with connections and links and a rich tapestry of things as part of the, the ideal life of a, the degrowth movement. It reminds me a lot of some of the things that inspire me in the realm of library socialism. So yeah, I feel like there's a lot of really interesting work under the banner of degrowth that's been done and thinking through some of this stuff. Whereas, yeah, like historically, I'd say I'd more come at it from a fully automated luxury communist perspective. I want a technological advanced future, you know, where technology is used to the fullest ability possible to provide abundance for everyone to the highest degree possible. Like I like Star Trek. The Star Trek vision of human destiny is is great. Yeah. But I actually think that the degrowth movement is fairly compatible with the Star Trek vision of human destiny. Yeah, I feel like the more I've looked into both of those kind of areas, the more I've seen the overlaps. And I think in the past, my view of fully automated luxury communism was like, oh, yeah, and of course, we can also work within the bounds of sustainability and Buckminster Fuller do more with less. I was like, that's all that's all packaged into fully automated luxury communism for me. I have a very nuanced view of it, whereas my view of degrowth was a bit less nuanced. It was like, oh, they just want us to live in underground holes and eat gruel and worms from the dirt beside the holes. And that's... <laughs> Uh, what's being proposed there. But I feel like there's actually a much more nuanced take on degrowth that I agree with. Yeah, in politics, we always accuse our enemies of trying to make us eat worms. But 
in this case, I don't think anyone is forcing anyone to eat worms. Although I think whether you're in a, say, Star Trek hypertech utopian future following the collapse of the biosphere, or you're in a degrowth society that alters the direction of the industrial throughput of our society in time, I think in both scenarios, eventually we shall eat some degree of worms as we deem necessary. Yeah, either worms or insects or something that you're not usually eating will probably <laughs> become more edible. Uh, yeah, I can't predict the future. Maybe worms will be poison in the future. Who knows? But as long as they're not poison, I think we probably will eat them. Birds eat them. They're good enough for birds. This isn't a demand. I'm not saying force everyone to eat worms, please. I'm just making a prediction that, yes, we will probably eat more worms at some point in the future because it just makes sense. Look at the birds. There's probably some great worm recipes, too, out there. I haven't tried them myself. Oh, but yeah. yeah. No, yeah. I haven't tried any of them, but I'm certain that some exist that are mind-blowing, where you're like, holy shit, the complementary spices with this worm is immaculate. Words taken from the mouths of people in both futures, both the fully automated luxury communist future and the degrowth, people are both saying that same thing, because it's just so part of human destiny to uh, eventually have that conversation. But yeah, no, I really got a lot out of uh, reading this book. And one of the things that I took away from it is the idea that people who support growth like to slander degrowth by associating it with the crises caused by growth. So you have like this ideology, like the GDP must go up, the resource throughput must go up. Uh, and then that eventually leads to like these bust cycles where the economy starts falling apart. And then all the political people have to scramble to start imposing austerity taking things away from people, making their lives worse, taking social services away from people, and then at the same time saying, see, this is what degrowth would be like. This is what it's like when we're in a period of bust in the boom and bust cycle. It's, it's bad when the economy contracts. It makes everybody worse off. But it's like this contraction, quote unquote, of the economy is being caused by the ideology of infinite growth. And the response to the contraction by governments is in the name of making growth happen again to reset us back towards growth. So there's like this way in which like the capitalist pro-growth ideology is constantly justifying itself by saying, oh, hey, don't you want to avoid these horrible things that are happening because of our system, but we'll associate them with the idea of, of getting off the, the growth train. It's kind of like when American conservative commentators put pictures of like tent cities where there's like rampant homelessness in America and they're like, this is what communism would be like. Yeah, or empty grocery shelves are like, this is a taste of what it would be like if we were under a different system. It's like, well, then why is it happening now under this system? Hmm. Yeah, degrowth doesn't mean less of what people need. In the vision of the people who participate in the degrowth movement, it's less useless shit, less huge amounts of wasteful shit going into the hands of a small group of people who live extremely luxurious lives while other people don't have enough. It's making sure that everyone has enough, but not by accelerating the resource throughputs of the planet Earth to the point where we destroy our own planet and can no longer live in the future. Because 
hey, maybe 3% growth is good right now for some Excel sheet that you're running, 3% growth, hey, that's great. But um, there's no growth on a dead planet. And if the entirety of the economic system causes all of the resource bases of the planet to be corrupted and everyone dies, well, there'll never be growth again, will there? So over the course of this episode, we'll be coming back to talk about the seven critiques of growth from the degrowth perspective. Um, and we'll be back at the end. We'll be answering questions like, can there be a degrowth spaceship? So stay with us. And oh, hey, before we go, thank you to everyone who donates to us on Patreon. Really helps us to do the show. And if you're not already doing it, why not consider six bucks a month? That sweet six gets you access to the whole archive and bonus episodes. Yeah, we couldn't do it without you. I really, really appreciate that. Yeah, we're literally on our hands and knees begging you, please donate to our Patreon. Yeah, and we're getting a doctor to surgically insert more knees in our legs to put extra knees in our thighs and in our uh, shins so we can get down on even more knees while doing our patreon asks in the future it's an experimental surgery but we think it will pay off yeah typically each human only has two knees but we think that can change yeah and it shows an inadequate amount of respectfully asking for donations people will be like well sure they're down on their knees but two knees Uh, we'd like to flip that whole thing on its head and get down on six knees each I'm hoping as the years and the decades pass, we can have infinite growth in knees. I'm hoping to get down on infinite knees eventually. It's a beautiful dream. It brings a tear to my eye. And I'm going to have to stop recording now so I can weep in dignity at such a beautiful vision as infinite knees. So thank you for that. Yeah. And while we're weeping, head over to patreon.com slash seriously wrong and uh, help make this vision of infinite knees a reality. And we'd like to surgically in the future get more tear ducts installed so we can weep with joy even deeper we can only do that with your help so thank you today's episode of seriously wrong is proudly brought to you by creating huge amounts of useless garbage and then burning it to pump up gdp numbers now a lot of people out there are worried about the gdp what if it doesn't keep going up What if there's not more buying and selling happening? What if the line starts to go down? Well, we saw that problem and at the same time we saw a solution. Creating tons and tons of useless garbage, not just the regular garbage that comes with normal buying and selling things, but extra garbage on top of that and then burning it all. First of all, you're creating jobs and creating the garbage. Now, this is completely useless garbage. This is this is wrappers for products that don't exist, wrappers that are malformed, that couldn't even close if you wanted them to. These are tools that serve no purpose, toys that aren't safe to play with and easily break. I saw some amazing furniture that you could never sit on or use for anything created by this trash department. So this is useless garbage, folks. And if that's not good enough, we bring in a whole second team of newly created jobs to burn it. That it's right, set it on fire and send plumes of smoke and smog into our precious atmosphere for profit. As long as they're paid, it's part of the GDP. And we're gonna achieve our 3% growth this year. No matter how many pieces of useless garbage we have to commission from raw materials and then burn to achieve it. 
When I sit outside of the trash burning factory and I see those plumes of smoke dampening the sky, it brings a tear to my eye. And not just because the smog is in my eye and it's like physically uncomfortable and making me tear up, which happens as well, but a tear of emotion because I know that the economy is growing and then that's good for society. In the future, we might even be able to create jobs that are about removing smog from the atmosphere or bringing extinct animals back to life or making undrinkable water pure again. The sky's the limit, but we're starting here. I'm imagining a future where we're constantly polluting the water even more and then purifying it, all with unnecessary pollutants that don't even serve any other purpose. Today's episode of Seriously Wrong is proudly brought to you by creating huge amounts of useless garbage for profit and then burning it for profit to pump the GDP. Today we are joined, or I am joined, by Aaron Van Singen, one of the authors of The Future is Degrowth, A Guide to a World Beyond Capitalism, which was a really dense, stimulating book I really enjoyed reading with a lot of ideas and references, probably something I'll be returning to in the years to come. Thanks for joining us here, Aaron. You're welcome. Thank you for bringing me on. First, just at the top level, could you briefly summarize what degrowth is for people who might not be familiar with it, what it aims to do, and why? So the degrowth proposal, in short, is the idea that we can have a society that achieves well-being and does not necessarily depend on economic growth to do so, but which also necessarily must draw down on material and energetic throughput, i.e. the amount of stuff we use in the economy. The reason why we want to do that is that there's just plenty of evidence that shows that economic growth is highly coupled to the kind of environmental impacts that are leading us to ecological disaster. Also, economic growth doesn't actually map on to well-being at a certain point you don't actually get the benefits from economic growth. It just goes to the wealthiest people. So the reason why people talk about degrowth is kind of as this frontal attack on this idea that we need economic growth to actually benefit most people when that's just entirely not the case. So you're saying that economic growth is closer tied to resource throughput and the utilization of the raw materials of nature than it is to people's well-being. Yeah, pretty much, <laughs> in a nutshell. It's also about how there's an economy that depends on economic growth to achieve well-being. So with neoliberalism, we're always told when there's an economic recession, like we're about to see, oh, we're going to have to cut back on all these public services so that we can get economic growth. But the fact is, is that the economy depends on economic growth and it's not actually the thing that provides those services the thing that provides those services is whether we decide to do so or not as a society but then regarding environmental impacts basically you can just map gdp gross domestic product onto carbon impact of the economy it just tracks extremely closely and then when there is variation which we had for a little while, where carbon impacts in certain countries were going down relative to their GDP. That's just in no way fast enough to outpace the limits of climate change that we're seeing. So there's no evidence that we can depend 
on economic growth to stop climate change from its most serious repercussions. There's this old phrase, this kind of cliche phrase, you can't have infinite growth on a finite planet. And obviously there's an intuitive way that's true. But then also, is it maybe possible that you could have infinite economic growth by decoupling economic growth from the material throughputs? And for example, having more and more intense arbitrary financial instruments or redividing and redividing the materials of the world to create that sort of regular 3% GDP growth that systems want to see? Mm-hmm. Is that out of the realm of possibility? You know, there is a realm of possibility, but it's not our realm right now. (laughs) It is possible that we could, let's say if we do some crazy stuff, totally reformat the economy, then redefine what we mean by economic growth, and then build a society that has economic growth while maintaining in its boundaries. That's possible, but that's not this world right now. Right now, they're way too coupled. There's also another funny aspect of that where there's this one socialist writer, Lee Phillips, who wrote in this book, Austerity Ecology, that... We had him on the show. Oh, great. Yeah. Years ago. Amazing. (laughs) He's like, kind of to what you said, like, so here, let me prove to you that infinite growth is possible on a finite planet. If you have a ball and you keep dividing it in half and half and half, and you keep using each little half, you could continue to use that little ball infinitely. But that's essentially conceding exactly the argument of degrowth because you don't actually have an infinite growth rate. Your rate is going down each time compared to the previous size of the ball. So infinite growth, what people mean by that is 3% each time. Compounding. Compounding, which you know you can calculate that out. If we have an infinite growth of solar panels, I don't know, within 50 years, we'll have way too many solar panels that we would ever want. You don't want an infinite growth of anything. Children, you want them to become adults and independent. Trees, you don't want them to become infinitely large. Even having infinite amount of hospitals would be kind of annoying. I don't know. (laughs) It's just a weird idea that we should have infinite growth per se. I think we could talk about infinite flourishing or infinite betterment. Another problem is that this idea of economic growth is so closely tied to all these other ideas, but really what is meant when someone says infinite growth is GDP, which is essentially just the calculation of how much capital is being accumulated. So it's important not to confuse that with other ideas like progress. Right. So in the book, it said degrowth is both a critique of the present, but also a visionary alternative. I thought maybe we should dig into our inherited situation in a little bit of detail. What's going on in the world that degrowth critiques? Extending on what you're just talking about, about this focus on GDP, this impossible idea, the 3% every year means doubling the economy every 25 years. The resource base of the planet cannot accommodate this in the medium term, let alone the long term. What's going on on planet Earth that needs a correction physically? Yeah, so physically we have what some people call the Great Acceleration, where you can graph the use of any material or resource, and you just see it exponentially going up from about 1950 to the present. It kind of had this 
slow increase from the 1850s and then around 1950 you just have this massive massive increase and at the same time you have the inverse with key planetary boundaries which include the carbon cycle which is the one that we'd be most worried with around climate change but also the nitrogen cycle which causes basically desertification and eutrophication of the oceans if you use too much nitrogen in agriculture you have biodiversity collapse which has all these cascading effects on human society as well there's just all these kinds of boundaries that we're reaching up against and pushing beyond which are completely proportional to that kind of great acceleration that's happening that's kind of like the material facts that are happening right now it's like a death of a thousand cuts almost. It's not just climate change. It's just in all kinds of aspects of the global ecosystem and also human economies as well. If I remember right, there's something like, is, is it seven planetary boundaries of which we've passed three of them already? The original paper was nine planetary boundaries and I think five of them had been transgressed and the other ones didn't look too good either, basically. So yeah, I got the... <laughs> When approximating the numbers from memory, I came up with a much more optimistic scenario than what we actually <laughs> faced. Yeah. We now go to the ecological critique of growth sketch. Oop, doo -doo, oop, doo -doo. Uh, just another day as a growthist. I'm here to destroy the ecological foundations of human life. That's my job. How do you do, sir? Sorry, did I hear you talking about your job being to destroy the ecological foundations of human life? That seems uh, yeah, a little bit harsh. Yeah, it's, uh, it's part of growth. It's, so it's important oh, to the it's economy. About growth. growth, yeah. We've got to double the economy every 24 years. Exactly, yeah. And, you know, growth cannot be transformed to become ecologically sustainable, so it's just sort of part of my job to, you know, growth in surface temperature, growth in ocean acidification growth in carbon dioxide output. These are the kind of things that I oversee at my job. So wait, so all these things grow like year after year, they're always growing? Yeah, exponentially. Yeah, hopefully. Like, <laughs> fingers crossed if I do my job right. Tropical forest loss, marine fish capture, going up and up and up. Uh, sorry, maybe this is just like a beginner question or like a Probably. sort of goofy... But hey, you know, Dumbo, we all need to learn. Uh, so. But isn't, isn't the natural world a precious, finite resource that infinite growth will necessarily spend its way through and therefore destroy the ecological foundation that the economic principles of growth are based on? Yep. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, you know, hopefully before that happens, we head to Mars or maybe we'll find tons of new planets. I bet Elon Musk will find a ton of new planets for us to move to, or we can grow out into the universe, or maybe even grow down into the Earth's core. I'd hope one day to grow into the sun, if we figure out how to live there, but like also destroy it somehow. The, uh, the alternative is for the entire economy to collapse and everything to fall apart. Ooh, I wouldn't want that. Yeah, no, it'd basically be communism. Wait, so. would, that would that make prices go up? It wouldn't be good. That's what I'll say. Well, this is all really confusing to me. I'm so glad it's under control because, like, as a layman, I don't understand anything that you're saying. So I'm glad that you're an expert and that you're 
Sorry, what'd you say you do again? You destroy the e economic or eco... Uh, destroy the ecological foundations of the planet. So... Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, cool. Just imagine all resources being used up at an ever faster rate. Imagine landfills expanding and expanding to cover the surface of the planet. Does imagine... It, does it pay good? Is it union? Oh, it's not union, but it does pay good, at least to me. Maybe I could get my son into it. Give him a little uh, product. You, you know, it's a really tight business, and you kind of got to know people. And we don't know each other that well before you get any ideas. He can try, your son, but, you know. Well, he's, he's just eight, so it would be in the future. Yeah, if the future still exists, maybe. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Yeah. Okay, well, nice to meet you. It's a big if, but, yeah. Uh, nice to meet you as well. Always appreciate a curious mind about my work. He thought I had a curious mind. Well, thank you. You just made my day. And that was the ecological critique of growth sketch. A significant chunk of the book is taken up by going into detail about these seven critiques of growth, arguing that they're this braided, complete critique, something that forms a whole which is bigger than the sum of its parts, degrowth brings together these seven strands of critique on growth to form something that is really, really comprehensive. And we've talked a little bit about the ecological critique, the hard limits of the planet, and to some degree, socioeconomic critique, but there's more layers to this as well. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah, something I really enjoyed about working on this book, and that kind of led me to become interested in degrowth was that there is this kind of holistic approach to the problems we have. It's not saying like, this is the one problem that we have. There's a set of frameworks that are drawn on and brought together and braided together. And the one that draws people a lot to degrowth immediately is, I guess, the ecological critique. But the socioeconomic critique, which is like a critique of GDP as a way of measuring our lives, critique of inequality as grounded in this drive for economic growth. That one is one that has existed for a long time as well, even before ecology became such a big concern. But there's other ones that I think are just as, or if not more profound, one that I really identify with is, I guess, the cultural critique, which really focuses on alienation that a society bent on growth induces in its subjects. So this idea that you have to constantly strive to better yourself, constantly work in order to get that thing that you're told that you need to get, not just pay your bills, but like the identity of yourself as being a productive member of society. And this kind of internalized competition where we're competing each other for resources, for time and attention. That's also part of the degrowth critique that we're just always on this treadmill and that it doesn't need to be that way. Other critiques, there's the critique of capitalism, which we go through at length. So based in a Marxist analysis, but trying to also go a little bit further as well. A really essential one to degrowth is the feminist critique. And particularly here, we draw on the ecofeminist tradition, but also queer feminist theory and feminist Marxist theory, basically, which is pointing to that the problem of this economy is that it systematically devalues care work 
and also systematically creates this binary of gender, which then also includes a system of domination of men over women. So that one is extremely important for degrowth. One illustrative example of that is, is what's called the housewife paradox, where let's say you're an economics professor and you're a man and you have a maid and then you're paying her for her work, but then you fall in love with her and marry her. All of a sudden, that work no longer is measured in GDP. Like she is no longer valuable thing in the economy because she continues to do the same work, but she's not getting paid for it. So it's just kind of an illustrative example of the way that economic value is structured in this society. And then the two other ones are critique of industrialism and South-North critique. So industrialism, I think, it kind of goes into the ecological humanists, people like Murray Bookchin, Ivan Illich, Rachel Carson, people who had this critique of capitalist technology. It wasn't necessarily an anti-modern approach, and it wasn't a back-to-the-land approach necessarily, though some of them did go that way. But it, it was really more of a technology is embedded in society, and it it has its own kind of structural impacts on society. So it, like a car, for example, creates road infrastructure, and then that creates uh, massive traffic deaths. And it also creates an alienation from our cities, where our cities become these sprawling suburban landscapes. So it's kind of a critique saying that certain kinds of technologies can be authoritarian themselves. And then finally, the South-North critique or international critique is that the growth economy, the capitalist economy is based on exploitation of the global South and uneven development between poor Southern working class people and the North. That chapter is also the longest chapter and maybe the one that I, I would warn against the most as it's a bit of a slog. I find it super fascinating. I love the the braided metaphor for thinking about like, actually, I'd say I was broadly familiar with each of these different things in different contexts, but seeing them all put together, I found it just like very persuasive as an argument for degrowth as a political perspective to be integrated, like just seeing all this together and the way that it connects together. This chapter I found really, really persuasive, although maybe I did skim a little more or something <laughs> because of the length of it. Mm, that's really good to hear because <laughs> I found that chapter unwieldy. I could see a reader getting a bit lost, but it's really good to hear that it came across. I was really enjoying the book from the start, but I actually do think it was these seven critiques of growth and seeing that little graph where there's like the seven categories and their main idea. And I was like, holy shit, this is bulletproof. This, <laughs> this is just like 100% correct. It made it fit in my brain as a total framework. That's amazing. That graph was actually like a total afterthought. It came in in like the very, very last proof where we added it at the very end. So that's really good to hear. Well, it was a great addition. <laughs> Matthias and Andrea, they're very structured in their thoughts as, and they were very much like, okay, here's seven critiques of growth <laughs> and here's three common principles for degrowth. And it's just really nice to be able to lay it out because it helps 
people understand and also makes the writing a lot more clear. Yeah, I like the little lists. It makes me feel like I can sort of look at it all at once, mm. where when it's reduced mm. to the abbreviated form and it's described in detail and you read it all in detail, there's things that stick out about it that are like, oh, that's interesting or that didn't know that fact before. It's all backing up the arguments. And then you can just like look at the list of things and being like, yeah, these are the seven critiques. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the, those critiques are right. They're all connected in this, mm -hmm. this way I can see. Yeah, it's something I also really enjoy about degrowth thought. You could think of it as a tradition that has been going on since capitalism, but more specifically in the last three decades, it's really grown. Hypocrites. Hypocrites, yeah. <laughs> right. What I really like about it is this kind of almost like ecological approach where many things matter. It's a kind of braiding of different ways of understanding together, not simplifying them. Yeah, that's part of what really resonated for me about degrowth and reading this book and seeing sort of the commonalities between things that we've talked about on the show or things I've thought about before. And like what a comprehensive and internally consistent politics aimed towards fundamentally transforming the world looks like something I'm interested in. And I, I feel like degrowth or at least the depiction of degrowth that you and your co-authors bring forward really scratched that itch for me. And like, like I want to integrate this understanding into my understanding of the world. Yeah, it was a exciting read in a lot of ways. And I feel like there's also references, things that are referenced or other authors or thinkers that I want to like follow up with that are briefly mentioned in the book. Mm, that's really great to hear. We now go to the cultural critique of growth sketch. Hey, so you're probably wondering why I invited you out for a couple of Frappuccinos today. Hey, sit down. Great to uh, get some time to catch up one-on-one. -on -one, just Yeah, you, you look me, good, uh, man. You look healthy. And, you know, I'm not wondering why. We're friends. I'm excited to spend some time. And, hey, if not Frappuccinos, what are we going to do? It's not like there's public spaces in this society that aren't commodified. Am I right? It's a, right, yeah. Yeah, it's a horrible thing. And, yeah. Yeah, that's the thing, actually, is that these little statements, these little asides... That you're making. Oh, like that one I just made. The, yeah, yeah, like you, the one you just made about common space. I got another one too. D don't you hate all the advertising up on the sides of the roads and the thing? I heard they want to put advertisements in the sky, blot out the night sky. It's horrible. Right. Well, I don't mind the advertising, actually. Really? Yeah, no, they're just being uh... surrounded by like, should I buy this product? Should I not? It helps me make informed decisions as a customer. And like, that's, that's kind of why I invited you here for these Frappuccinos. Oh. You complain about this stuff, but at the end of the day, you're happy to drink a Frappuccino no matter how many ads for it you see. It's a little hypocritical. Well, I would, I'd drink it even if I saw no ads because Frappuccinos are delicious. Well, you're, how can I put this? The whole friend group slash incubator is starting to feel like you're a little bit financial deadweight, you know? We're losing money by well, being friends with you because time is money. And we're not looking for pals. We're looking for business partners in the procurement of more and more revenue and money growth for our family for our team um, yeah well i have been going through a bit of a rough patch recently you know i have the health issues and the personal the parents just died bereavement i've been going through a lot so yeah i haven't been super productive lately and isn't it just like bad about society that you always have to be productive that every relationship has to be seen as this investment or i don't know it's kind of 
it's kind of crappy when you think about it. Yeah, I mean, some are born to grind and some aren't, and some don't grind. Some, yeah, well, and I don't I feel, know if anyone's born to grind, but some people are better at it, for sure. Yeah, and I feel like, I know, as someone who's had to... I mean, you grind a lot, and I, think, I mean, you have a bit more money than me, but not that much more money. Is it really worth it, do you think? Yeah, ab- yes, ab- 100%. And even though I do feel sometimes that a lot of people criticize me because I come from money, I come from a rich family, and then because of that, I have to work twice as hard to show them that I'm serious and that I'm I'm earning my own keep. And so as someone who has had to work twice as hard, I find it insulting when you're going around bringing this critique of growth-oriented capitalism in the incubator uh, when we're all trying to work on projects. I'm just saying the culture seems... And, and like advertisements in the sky, it's like, okay, great. Unused space. Maybe one time my startup will be advertised in the sky. See, now this is something I feel like as friends we can debate because i i disagree i value the stars well i i don't know how to say we're not we're this isn't a conversation between friends this is this is a termination you know you're being terminated as a friend because oh. everything i invest into these like you are whether you like it or not i mean look we all have our personal opinions about this but we are all means to each other's ends and if you're not bringing back a return on investment I, I just like spending time with you all. That's the only return on investment I need. I don't even think of it as a return on investment. It's just sort of human relations. But, I mean, if you want to kick me out of the friend group slash incubator, I don't know where I'm going to live or how I'm going to support myself. So I hope that I, w- I wish that you wouldn't. But the relentless logic of growth and the need to, to kind of put all human relations into this hyper-economized space kind of i get like i get it i just it makes me sad well if you need money you can just install wiper on your phone it's a app-based gig uh independent contractor service where you can be called to the rich's house to wipe their bum for them oh uh, wiper for it's, a minute there i thought you were gonna say if you need money come to me i can loan it to you or even give you some but no yeah i don't know I don't there's a really... whole gig work economy to yeah. help the it's kind of degrading though don't you think no. Wiping butts? No, it's an important part of... It's very important. Can't they wipe their own butts? Yes, but they choose not to. So this is it for our friendship. It's over? You're like a piece of land that our friend group conquered, claimed as our own, used up, and then left behind, moving to new pastures. Yeah. Yeah, it does feel that way. I do feel conquered feel that, and used up. It feels that way up. from yeah. here, too, yeah. Well, at least we agree on that. C'est la vie. That's French. It means that's life. All right, well, uh, goodbye forever. That feeling of betrayal and pain and isolation mm-hmm. that you have from this? Yeah. That sounds like a cash register to me. What do you think about that? That's horrifying. Yeah. Okay. I don't envy you. Even though you're better off than me materially, I I don't envy you uh, emotionally or spiritually. Is that any way to talk to someone who just bought you a Frappuccino? Well, I'll see you around, I guess, down below in the filthy streets. From my crystal walkways above the city with the other the other people who invested in non-fungible tokens. Yeah, maybe I can get a job polishing the crystal. And that was the cultural critique of growth sketch. Now back to our show. On the cultural critique, if someone is experiencing 3% personal growth every year, does that mean that their personhood has doubled in 25 years? <laughs>
or maybe they've like put the treadmill setting on extreme and they're like just about to fly off into the wall or something. The housewife paradox is really fascinating. Also the idea that, so for GDP's sake, GDP needs to tell GDP that it's had 3% growth every year. Otherwise that's a problem. But then huge parts of the economy have never been recorded in GDP. Would it be, would adding more care work into the GDP managed economy give us a pathway to maintaining growth, but decoupling it from the environment? That's a really, really interesting question. And, you know, there's a lot of different answers to that, most of which are dealt with by feminist economists. Another image that we use that some people might be familiar with is like the iceberg metaphor, where, you know, on the top of the iceberg, you have GDP, basically. And then on the bottom, you have all those things that aren't measured in the economy. Now, should we just expand GDP to measure them? I think the problem is that the commons, the economy of childcare, of taking care of each other, of supporting each other, mutual aid, like those things are by nature impossible to measure, or at least impossible to quantify and aggregate into the representation of money. So economists talk about that they're incommensurable, like you can't add these up and then say, these are worth this much. How much are honeybees worth to us? People try to do that, but like, does that really work? Then there's the kind of other side of it, which is the wages for housework movement as one example, where people said, well, if these things aren't paid, then you should pay us for it. And kind of like a basic income for care work that was a big demand by feminist movement in the 80s. It's good for the economy. <laughs> you just got to do 3% every year and you're set, <laughs> compounding indefinitely. Yeah. <laughs> in the book, you talk about different diverging currents within degrowth. And there's like a variety of influences. And there's also commonalities. Like I remember there was something about a study or a poll of people who are participating in a degrowth conference. And there was a consensus around that, around some of the, the very basics of what degrowth stands for and why. And it was broadly like an environmental justice, decrease the impact on the economy, et cetera, et cetera. But then there's also sort of divergent currents within that. What differences exist within the degrowth field? Yeah. So just to back up a bit, I, th I think, you know, people say degrowth is this, degrowth is that. Degrowth is this huge, it would be saying like, the left is this or the left is that. I think degrowth is a small part of the left, but there's still a lot of differing opinions in there. So this one study was a survey of 2000 conference attendees that Matthias, one of the co-authors was part of. And people were basically on the same page about capitalism being the problem, the necessity of social and environmental justice. But then there's like, you know, people who are like pro-technology, people who are like more back to the land, people who are maybe more focused on kind of like financial policy kind of stuff. Like, oh, if we just reform the banking system. And then there's people who are like way more from a social movement background and are like, we need to build mass working class movements. It's a pretty broad field and... I think it's important not to say, oh, degrowth is inherently anti-capitalist. What we try to do in our book is argue for why it should be. Right. So like the far boundaries of degrowth as a, a movement or ideology includes 
a variety of answers on some of these specific questions. What are like the limits on that? When would you not be degrowth? What would someone have to do that would be like, that's not degrowth anymore? Yeah, that's a really good question. And basically, there's just a consensus of racism, white supremacy, misogynistic ideas. Those just never have space in any degrowth kind of gathering. There's Alain de Benoist. He's like a French far-right thinker, really bad guy. <laughs> and he wrote a book that was called Demain la Décroissance, Tomorrow Degrowth. And it's basically an environmentalist conservatism, white supremacist conservatism. And it's like completely never has been included, always panned in like all of the degrowth movement. There's just like no connection to the actual degrowth movement in France and this one guy. But it's important to be clear that there are people like, for example, in Italy, there's also some troublesome connections with the degrowth affiliated movements and the emerging far right, as there has always been, you know, in a lot of movements from socialist to ecological movements. And that's something that we argue has to be continued to be guarded against. And we have to have like a firm position on these kinds of things. For the degrowth movement that generally has a consensus around racial, economic, gender justice, and so on, what are the defining aspects there? What do people focus on? Are there principles for degrowth that we can use as the sort of spine, the backbone of our thinking? Yeah, that's really good. And that's basically what the next chapter is about for us. First, we go over different currents within degrowth. I'm not going to go over them now. But then we kind of try to define this commonality between degrowth, where we go through all the literature and we say, okay, we can kind of distill this commonality in what brings degrowthers together. So one is degrowth is about enabling global ecological justice. Specifically, you could think of this one as like politicizing the throughput of the economy, how much stuff we use. This becomes a necessity, like the kinds of things we do in the economy is a question of ecological justice. Then strengthens social justice and self-determination for a good life for all. So in this context of a changed metabolism of society, it must achieve well-being for all. There must be equity at the center of this and also self-determination. It has to be a democratic process. And then also number three, it redesigns institutions and infrastructure so they are not dependent on continuous expansion for their functioning. So this is the one which is basically, it's not a capitalist economy. It's not an economy that depends on accumulation for accumulation's sake. So that's kind of like the three nodes of how you could think of degrowth proponents as being on the same page. We now go to the old feminist critique of growth sketch. So this is the economy control room. It's where it all happens. The uh, economy. Oh, uh, look at that! Well -tuned all those, engine. those lights and beeps and boops, and it's all working perfectly. It's such an honor to work here. See, this is the big line. We can see it go up. It went up. Beautiful. It's oh, happens it every time. Up. Ooh, wow! What a great first day on the job. Oh wait, what? What is that sound? Is that? That doesn't sound like a good sound. Is that? Is that normal? 
Economy General, we've got an uncontrolled paradox at Sector A7. An uncontrolled paradox? Yeah, let me bring this up. Uh, run diagnostics. What's going on here? Oh my god. <laughs> so it looks like someone has made a mistake here. There is a housewife who also works as a maid as her day job, and mm-hmm. she has been assigned to work at her own house. So for the purposes of the economy, it's not clear whether it should be recorded as part of GDP or not. It's a classic housewife paradox. Oh, no. Yeah, right. Because if you're cleaning your own house as a housewife, that's not part of the GDP. But if you're a maid, it is. Then Oh, no. Here, let's see if what we do can we get do? this. Um, let's just get New York on the line. Hey, New York, we got a uncontrolled housewife paradox in sector A7. It looks like it's spreading. Uh, it's causing an economic uh, paradox. Oh my god, that line is almost leveling off. It's not going up as fast anymore. At New York, the line is leveling off. It's not necessarily going up or down. Oh my god, and th- there's another it's alarm. Spread to sector A5, sector A4, sector A3. New York, this is out of control. Can you copy? The paradox is spreading. They, they did the housewife paradox. Everybody knows it's a basic part of economics that reproductive labor is not included in GDP. What were they thinking sending her to her own house? Oh, this is just such a basic mistake. This might be the big one. Oh, my first day, too. This is horrible. Is there is there a way we could shut it all down or reboot or... No, okay, that alarm means the economy is fully collapsing right now. Everyone, oh, no. the economy is fully collapsing. Get to your escape pods. It, the big one is here. Here, come with me, kid. Escape pods this way? I, Heck of a uh, first day, huh? Yeah, I, I couldn't have imagined. I assumed it would all just keep going up and up forever. But. It's the most stable system possible, but it's also prone to complete collapse. Uh, you know, a lot of people that hear reproductive labor and they think that it just refers to, like, reproducing, like having kids and raising them and all that sort of stuff. But it's right, actually something right. wider. I mean, it doesn't Yeah, I remember that. this from the handbook. Yeah, it's not... Like, that's part of it, but it's not... It's one of the things we don't value. I mean, unless they're a surrogate who's being paid to have a kid by yeah, some rich part people. Of yeah, yeah, that makes line go up. Yeah, exactly, but not just a housewife. I don't get why this is so hard for people to understand. It's like, but you know, any sort of thing that anything that's involved in the reproduction of everyday life, you know, the doing of dishes, the cleaning of spaces, the creation and recreation of domestic environments. I mean, the whole economic system relies on that, but it also relies on it being made invisible, devalued, and something that's sort of out of the economy, as they say. Yeah, so, it's kind of beautiful in a way, the way there's that dividing line and everything below the line is invisible to the GDP. It's brilliant. Is that your, you can swipe your key card there to open the escape pods? Yeah, here we awesome. go. You just sit in that padded seat there and goodbye Earth. It's been oh, a good this, run. This is the least decent padding, but... Oh yeah, are we leaving the entire Earth behind? or? Yes, yeah, we had to... Um, the planet will be presumably destroyed because of right the economy, uh, the system collapsing, yeah. and the paradox becoming reality. And huh, you know, I was really looking forward to this job, but uh, maybe we can rebuild on Mars, right, create yeah. another economy just like this one. That's a beautiful idea, and yeah, let's do it. All right, just plug that down and. Goodbye, Earth. Well, was well. I'm sure glad I got this job because if I didn't, I might be left behind. Whew. Lucky me. Okay, bye, Earth. Ah, you know, from this distance, it's kind of beautiful up here. You can't even see that the economy is crashing. 
Yeah. It's almost like all those games we were playing and the lines and the, it was all just made up to begin with. And almost like that. It's clearly not actually like that. Yeah, it's not like that, but it's almost like. It's almost like, it's not quite like, but it's almost like we uh, we followed a lie, a lie to its inevitable conclusion. And now we'll perish on the face of Mars without a plan because escaping isn't good enough. It's also important to be able to produce and reproduce the society you want to live in. But it's not that, but it's almost like that. Almost, yeah. And that was the old feminist critique of growth sketch. On our show, we've talked about this idea or set of ideas called library socialism, which basically the nucleus of the idea, and it's built on ideas from a variety of contexts, but namely like Murray Bookchin, David Graeber, Inventing the Future, some other Marxist books. And the nexus of it is something that in your book, it's referred to as convivial technology, social technology for the purposes of public abundance. We're focused on the metaphor of the library. And thinking about libraries in the way that there's a social abundance created without the need to produce, you can have a thousand people read a book without having to produce a thousand books. <laughs> that concept was really motivating to us. And also the glimmer there that if you apply that to property relations more generally, you apply that to more things than just books, you can achieve the ends of degrowth, the necessary ends of degrowth, and also focusing on the questions of luxury and abundance and the value of technology, which in my thinking, I associate very heavily with fully automated luxury communism. So all this to ask, when it comes to questions of luxury and abundance and technology, it sounds like there's some variation within the degrowth field. How can we approach these questions responsibly? And what tools do we have to be an anti-austere degrowth? <laughs> That's a super amazing conversation and something I was excited to talk to you guys about because, you know, I also very inspired by Murray Bookchin specifically and his utopianism. And with this book, we also wanted it to be utopian. And I wrote an essay actually on bringing together Bookchin's ideas on abundance. So like post-scarcity anarchism and his ideas of city municipalism and degrowth. And that kind of started a lot of things where I kind of wanted to push for a direction in degrowth where though people were pretty much on the same page about it's not austerity, it's not just stripping away stuff. There wasn't much clear explanation of what that would actually look like. So that's kind of a big thing that we do in this book. And then we bring it together under, yeah, these ideas of conviviality, which is kind of a Latin root of living together and public abundance, as you said. So public abundance is, I would say it's basically the same thing as library socialism, where the good things in life, the necessary things in life and more are available to everybody. So you have libraries for everything. Like you could have a library for bicycle trailers. You can have libraries for tools to fix stuff. You can have libraries for food, basically a cafeteria, so that the basic things are just accessible. And what this would do is it would deprivatize wealth. It would make it so that wealth is for everybody. And I really like this term library socialism because it's a metaphor in itself. It helps you think through. But when using the term public abundance, it was like really in reference to 
a lot of this literature on like, for example, communal luxury or, you know, luxury communism, the term luxury, I have like some personal problems with it because the definition of luxury is that some people have it and others don't. Right. But, you know, it's a bit of semantics, but like, that's how it's used. It's like the question of whether there should be no kings or every person a king and queen or yeah. non-binary royal. I don't know if there's a name for that. Andre Gortz has this amazing line where he, he's, he defines luxury as something that is an exclusive thing. So like no socialist would ever say that everyone should have a beach house by the sea, you know, or like everyone should have a limousine. No, like socialism is about reimagining what wealth looks like and ending the class structure. So in the proposals of the book, we have this whole chapter on what public abundance would mean specifically in different areas of life. And there's a lot more to be filled in there. But what we were trying to push for was filling in this understanding of degrowth, not as austerity, which a lot of people accuse it as being, but as something that would actually look like wealth in common for most people, and then probably look like austerity for the very rich. Yeah, I really like the term convivial technology. I've sort of struggled before with how to describe, I've always wanted to use social technology sounds too ambiguous, but like the things that we create together through common understanding that relate to how we configure how people relate to each other and in what context there's room for technological innovation in there that isn't necessarily like gears moving um, on a clock or something like that. You can design or think of or experiment with frameworks that, to use a computing metaphor, the source code of social interactions in an institutionalized way. And I feel like convivial technology is a really good term to talk and think about that realm. Yeah. So that's based partly on Ivan Illich's work, where he talks about convivial technology. And then also Andrea, her research is really about this, where she tries to develop some metrics of how could you assess technology that is convivial? Like, what would be some ways of assessing different technologies and whether they actually encourage us living with each other? For this other project, I was in Los Angeles and we were interviewing Latina community activists who were organizing these community kitchens where they just feed hundreds and hundreds of people every week. And when we were like talking to them about like, okay, so what are you doing here? They're like, it's convivir. We're living together, <laughs> you know, like, and they're using that word because there's just like a inherent understanding of how important it is to be convivial. And I'm really looking forward to that word being more current in the English language because we, we need it. We now go to the old degrowth critique of industrialism sketch. Hey there, fellow worker on the uh, old industrial factory line. How's it going today? Same old, same old, making widgets, can't complain. Putting food on the table for me and mine. Yeah, absolutely. These, uh, these Invisible widgets, care work happening at home. You too? Yeah, same, same. My wife has so much trouble getting the grease stains out of my overalls, but... Uh, uh, I mean, that's what they're there for. She does it great. Capture yeah. the grease. It's true. I got this big grease stain over here. I tried to wipe it off with my enormous wrench, but it just smeared it. Yeah. So. Yeah, wrenches will do that. And these widgets, you know, they're greasy. They need to be greased up or the moving parts don't move. Right, yeah. That's what they say. So it's like as an industrial worker, putting together these greasy widgets, coming home, 
grease stained. Yep, yep, yep. So I was just getting uh, orders from the boss. He said he wants us to double production. <laughs> double production? Yeah, as quick as possible. He's got his head's said. in the clouds or what? You know, I said, yeah, okay, sir, yes, sir. Well, of course. Because I, I didn't want to get fired, but... Yeah. That's what I was thinking, too. Like, I don't know if we can double production, but he said industrial expansion is uh, imperative, so... Yeah, that reminds me of something that one of these uh, kids that came in here for a summer and then quit was saying on the way out. He was saying that the whole industrial factory system was set up for the benefit of an elite strata of owners and operators to serve their interests for profit, for expansion, at great ecological cost, and at the cost of great exploitation of the workers. And he proposed that there might be an alternative way to have a technological society that instead oriented technological development not around the needs of the owning class, but of the mass of people and uh i i was like oh you're you're a wild kid but you had that, a point ooh, yeah those are that's uh dangerous ideas i like it though wow a technology that's not based on reinforcing hierarchical relationships but actually a more democratic sort of living together type vibe i wonder if that type of technology could exist it's so different yeah i mean technology that's designed to meet people's needs uh, is democratic in both form in process and in its final content uh it's, a, it's an interesting idea you know the idea that you could have democratic productive forces and techniques without exploitative oppression yeah that's a brain twister you know i spend my days making widgets and not thinking big ideas like that but that one that, that catches my imagination that's... yeah i'd pitch it to the boss but i think it'd probably make him irrationally angry and then try to find some ways to fire me and deprive me of the basics of life yeah, if you catch him in a good mood, he might just laugh you out of the office and dock your pay, but more likely fired. I wouldn't bring it up. Yeah, if anything, either. we could whisper it to the other uh, factory workers on the ground. It's quite, pss, 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 pss. Oh, that's an interesting idea, pss, yeah. Pss, pss, pss. Little whispers. Pss, 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 pss. When you're handing off your tray of widgets, hey, pss, 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 that yeah. sort of thing. Yeah, it doesn't sound like a half-bad idea, you know? Oh, well, it's only two days to the weekend, so just push through, I guess. Yeah. It's nice to dream, but it is what it is currently, so. And that was the Degrowth Critique of Industrialism sketch. And now back to our interview. There's a section of the book, there's this systematic overview of these different potential pathways towards degrowth, where convivial and democratic technology is one of the headings. And another one that I found very fascinating from that section is the concept of democratizing social metabolism. But the basic concept is like how you have democratic institutions in society that are determining what decisions are made of what parts of the economy grow, what parts shrink, where is innovation focus and energy being pointed and basically like the direction of the social economy being democratic. Yeah. And I think in some ways, the best way to define degrowth is to say it's the politicization of social metabolism. So metabolism, social metabolism requires a bit of explanation. It's basically like the way that a human body has metabolism where you need a certain amount of energy to keep going. So does the economy. So you need certain inputs of material and energy. And then there's also the outputs, like where are you going to put that stuff? And degrowth is about making that itself a political thing, an object of politics and an object of democracy. So where contamination is a 
political thing that we need to deal with or sacrifice zones are a political thing we need to deal with. And the amount of energy use is also a political thing, which for a long time, that didn't seem to be a barrier of like how much energy we used as long as we switch to renewables or whatever. But now like as we're having the gas crisis with the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the sanctions that are following, people are realizing, oh no, there is a political factor just in the amount of energy that is being used. That is a political object. Countries in the global South have realized that for a long time where they face rationing from oil and have been already for decades. So I think that's key, this process of making that democratic. And what that means is that some things are going to grow and some things will have to go. Like we will have to dispense with a huge amount of infrastructure and transform it in ways that we can. That was something that I found really fascinating. The concept of the process of degrowth addressing the sort of broken ideas about what growth is and what it should be and changing the resource throughput of the economy overall as a means to live within our means and prevent worst case scenarios in the climate crisis and mitigate the climate crisis to whatever degree we do face it. It made me, I feel, I was going to say the little Lee Phillips on my shoulder was happy to read that. It's fascinating to think about that sort of differential growth, but that it's a publicly made and democratic decision like degrowth doesn't mean that nothing ever grows again. <laughs> it, mm -hmm. it means that certain things need to degrow out of existence for human life. Other mm -hmm. things need to grow year after year. But there's no assumption that that would ever occur forever for any reason. Mm -hmm. But we're in a situation where some things do need to grow. Other things need to degrow. And the cumulative effect is a degrowth in terms of GDP. Something about that tickled mm -hmm. me to read. Absolutely. And there's a couple of things to tease apart there, which I think is worth going into. One is something that we haven't quite covered yet is what we talk about as the growth ideology or the growth hegemony, which is this idea that is actually really recent and only started coming around in the 1950s, which is that you should measure an economy and how well it's doing according to economic growth. Before that, the term economic growth was never even used. And that perfectly coincides with the total evisceration of labor movements in the West and at the same time with the development of international development as a concept, as a way of stripping poor countries of public assets for the sake of growth. Yeah, and the, the great acceleration too, right? Exactly. So it's kind of this social material and ideological process Yes, there will be things that need to grow, but we need to frontally identify that this is something that we've been under the spell of that has really shaped our entire understanding of what is good and what is not good. So when you defend economic growth, yes, you might think you're defending progress as such, which is what Lee Phillips equates economic growth with. He says, you know, it's just all the same. Growth is progress. But when you think you're doing that, what you're in fact doing is that you're defending Western imperialism. <laughs> you're defending the ability of the elite class to have a kind of ideological toolkit to make the working class say, okay, okay, we won't demand for the things we want. 
we need to grow first as an economy. So it's kind of like this ideological tool for domination that we need, we do need to identify and attack frontally. However, that doesn't mean that we're against progress. It just means that we have to be aware of the current moment we're in, where this kind of growth ideology, this growth hegemony is a dominant tool for oppression today. This resonates so deeply with me. I see a big, strong parallel here with hierarchy. And I was just recently thinking about hierarchy as something, yes, I oppose hierarchy, but a lot of the questions I get about opposing hierarchy are rooted in this idea of embracing and understanding hierarchy as this actual thing, believing in the sort of mythology of hierarchy. So it's like, in order for me to explain why I oppose hierarchy, I have to first start by debunking the idea of hierarchy in the first place. It just doesn't Mm. make enough sense Mm. to even fully oppose. I can't oppose something that doesn't make internal. There's aspects of it I oppose But there's also aspects of it that don't even make up enough sense to oppose. Mm. It's kind of the same with degrowth in that the idea of growth needs to be debunked in addition to being opposed. Yes. In addition to even identifying different ways that we could grow. I think that's a really good comparison because, yeah, I'm sure you get all the time like, oh, but we need hierarchy to make certain kinds of complex decisions or like the same thing like, oh, but we need growth so that the poor can stop being poor. (laughs) It's just like, well, no, but that's not what growth does. (laughs) Yeah. The other day I was thinking, isn't it weird how an organization is defined as a hierarchy if there's any vertical element to it at all, but no matter how horizontal an organization is, Mm. it could be 99.9% horizontally organized. All of the productive capacity of it could be rooted in horizontal relationships. But mm. if there's a single vertical element, one person above another in any way possible, suddenly the entire thing is conceptualized as a hierarchy. Mm. The horizontality is completely invisible. I was trying to think about how to debunk hierarchy. And this is one of the things that came to mind. Like It's so ideological. But anyways, mm. it's my special interest right now. Uh, <laughs> and we're here to talk about yours. <laughs> no, that's, I've been thinking about hierarchy a bit too. I mean, I always am, but yes, (laughs) I think that's super fascinating. We now go to the degrowth critique of capitalism sketch. Uh, Hello, Spensworth. Who's calling? Hi, Spensworth. It's me, Bysworth. Bysworth. Why are you calling me? I just wanted to let you know that I've been continuing my process of accumulation, converting raw materials through exploited labor into possessions for me, and I've been accumulating quite a bit in our little competition. (laughs) I bet you've been barely accumulating anything, at least compared to me. I've been enclosing the commons, and I've been exploiting the labor class to do it. More and more, stuffing my pockets full of bounty of the earth. No, the bounty of the earth is going quickly through exploited labor into my pockets, worth No, it's not. You've barely accumulated anything. Mm, no, it's not true. I've accumulated a lot and I continue to accumulate. You're barely even a capitalist at this point. Pitiful. I dare you to say that to my face. I was talking to your employees the other day. They barely even feel exploited, Bysworth. You're... No, I'm the most exploitative boss in town. It's your employees who have a lavish, enjoyable lifestyle, lots of vacation time. 
They cheer you as the greatest boss of all time. Your pockets aren't even bulging. My pockets are bulging, sir. Bulging with the natural resources of the earth accumulated through exploited labor. No, to increase Bison. my power in the market. Yes, to the increase my power. The inherited resources of the planet are in my bulging pockets. Then you... Your bitly little pockets would be bulging even from the smallest token of the raw resources I have the biggest the pockets. No, you don't. My pockets are enormous. My pockets... accumulate some bigger pockets. I've had sir. to have more and more pockets. These pants are nothing but pockets at this point. Filled with the slips of from the banks of the accounts and the stocks and the all the things that I am. No, my pockets are deeper and they're more stuffed yet. <sighs> oh, Bysworth, you make me so angry, but, you know, at least we can say that whichever one of us wins in the capitalist competition, that the little peons below will never have their share of the previously commonly held resources of the planet. It'll be either you or me or one of the other big capital owners left with it all at the end. Yes, although we may compete within the rules of the game, uh, the path is clear before both of us. Well, it was nice talking to you today, and I, I hope to yell at you again soon in competition, bitter yes. competition. It is always nice to hear from you. It's You're infuriating, and you're wrong, and you're worse than me, and below, and have less, but... Yada, yada. Yeah. Oh, well, toodaloo. Goodbye. Assistant, can you send a gift basket to Spensworth? He's the closest thing I have to a friend. Uh, yes, sir. Right away, sir. And that was the old degrowth critique of capitalism sketch. And now back to our show. For the transition to a more degrowthist society, in the book you list a trifecta of things, nautopias, non-reform reforms, and counter-hegemony, which... I was really excited to find someone posted a screenshot from one of your presentations in our Discord. And it's so similar to something that we put together from some different sources on our show before that I was like, is this a reflection? Did I influence this book? (laughs) But it, it turns out that no, it actually is influenced by Eric Olin Wright, who wrote a long time before we piece this together in our Library Socialism and Complementarity episode. But yeah, I was like, holy shit. Yeah, like, Degrowth is awesome. They agree. <laughs> they agree. And they've even described it better with more references. <laughs> so what are Nautopia's non-reform reforms and counter-hegemony, and how do they work together to uh, to bring about a more degrowth future? Yeah, so Nautopia's are basically things that exist in the present that are utopias in the now that kind of provide a vision and an example of what an alternative could look like. And I've been seeing this critique go around where people say, oh, that's extremely naive that you think you could just expand Nautopias and then somehow some things will change. But we really focus on Nautopias as what Barua Muraka, a German philosopher, calls the education of desire. Let's say like some revolution occurs and then people are like, okay, we took over the state, we took over the government. What now? (laughs) They're just going to turn to the institutions that they know to replicate those in maybe a better way. If they don't have any examples of things that worked better, then it's just going to be bullshit again. So really, Nautopia is about encouraging the imagination of something that could be different. How could things function differently? And that could be from you realize that your community garden, that you can actually 
really work well together and navigate this little plot of land together collectively. Or it could be a bike sharing system, or it could be a system where you get free public transport in your city. It's like, oh, wait, we could just do this? The other one is non-reformist reforms. And this is a term by André Gortz, who's a French philosopher. It's kind of like people say, oh, that's just reformist. That's not going to change big things. But a non-reformist reform is something that is a kind of policy that actually opens the door to cascading change. So like the classic example here is basic income that a lot of people will be familiar with. But the one that we really like and focus on is basic services, which connects to the kind of public abundance idea and library socialism. So it's like if you just take the necessary services out of the market and make them available to everybody, housing, healthcare, it opens a lot of political space for everybody. And then the last one is counter-hegemony. And you could also think of this as, in Eric Olin Wright's terms, like a ruptural strategy. This is the one where without social movements, none of those other things are really going to work. Without actual people power, which can refuse, let's say if like Bernie Sanders becomes president <laughs> when he's 100 years old or something, even so, he might be awesome, but that doesn't matter because you still have like all this entrenched power that he would be up against. You still need people power to kind of pressure, not just politicians and corporations, but also to create dual power outside of the system so that there is this form of power and agency that people have, that we actually have some agency to be able to push certain things to be made to happen. So counter hegemony could include like education, and blockades of crucial fossil fuel infrastructure and labor strikes as well. Yeah, I really love the idea of in Nautopias, the idea of like prefigurative practice, or even to some degree, I guess, non-reformist reform practice being a, a means to stimulate imagination and stimulate desire for better, mm -hmm. to give people an appetizer for mm -hmm. a social revolution. <laughs> yeah, and you hear this all the time where leftists and socialists, they're like, we just need to promise people all these nice things in our party platform. But anything happening is inadequate. Yeah. <laughs> but, and it comes from a good place, but it's, I think they're coming from a good place where they're thinking, oh, we need to promise people all these things. But people don't vote for nice things if they haven't seen what those nice things are or that it's even achievable. Most people do not trust politicians. They don't trust the government, mm -hmm. but if their basis of life is different, if they have examples of alternatives where they live in their day-to-day -day life, they might see that it is possible to have universal basic services, or it is possible to have universal basic income. Otherwise, they might say, no, th that's just another empty promise from another shitty politician, and my life is never going to change. I think it is a good thing. I mean, we can find plenty to criticize about the masses of people's opinions <laughs> and how they relate to the world. But I think it is kind of a good thing that in general, people want realistic proposals that they can think about what it would take to see through the sort of popular demand for not just the perfect platform, but rather People vote for the politicians that they think have a pragmatic chance of winning. They tend to, right? Mm -hmm. There's limitations and issues with that 
way of thinking, if it shudders the imagination or makes people not want to think about better worlds or to think about radical possibilities. But it is kind of like a good thing if people demand <laughs> from, from political figures some sort of accountability, realism, proportionality, and so on. If just saying the best thing possible made everyone back you to do whatever you want to do, it'd be kind of a wild system. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I was wondering if you have thoughts on the strategic benefit of using the word degrowth. So like the argument I can think of against it that I sometimes sort of see is that it's somehow like alienating or creates misconceptions. And then there's alternative frameworks or frames, which to some degree talk about the same thing, but not always, like green growth or growth agnosticism is more often the one that's ideologically close than green growth. Green growth is kind of worse, but growth agnosticism is another rhetorical frame people use. You could also think of something like alter growth, similar to alter globalization. What strategic or rhetorical benefit do we get or not get from using degrowth, do you think? Yeah, this is an amazing question. And it's the one that kind of like titillates me the most because the same kinds of complaints come up again and again. I just keep seeing people now that, you know, we put out this book, you just kind of see more people come out of the woodwork and say, you know, I'm from a marketing background and you really need to rethink this word. I don't think it will sell. It's just not appealing enough to people. You need something nice and positive. Or it's like, have you considered doing some focus groups on which word you want to use? It's just funny to me because that's just not at all <laughs> the goal here. You know, if we wanted to, we could be like, we are for a perfect socially just world and we could call it something like socialism. But that's not really what we're trying to do. I think of the word degrowth honestly more as like a, it's a bit of a, like a meme, a mimetic word. Some people, it rubs the wrong way, then they react to it, then more people hear it, then more people talk about it. And when you read something convincing about it, then it's like fun to tell your friends, like exactly this degrowth thing. And they're like, degrowth? What? <laughs> exactly. Isn't growth good? Yeah. Yeah. So it's like, how can we get a word that travels really well, partly because it's easy to misunderstand, but also partly because growth is something that we need to frontally address. Like I wrote this article with my friend Sam Bliss in 2015 called Degrowth is Punk as Fuck, where we're like, okay, so there's all these people who accuse degrowth as being too negative, but look at all these words that were positive and look at how they were completely co-opted, like sustainable development, green growth. You could just list a bunch of them. They just became part of what everyone was advocating for, because how could you say no to like, oh, we just want nice things. Even the word buen vivir, which is like summa uh, case, which is from indigenous movements, proposing like an alternative to extractive development models in South America, buen vivir, which is like good life, has been completely co-opted. There's even like a Coca-Cola advertisement saying buen vivir. So that's one positive thing. In the article, we said that little D is a middle finger to the establishment. It's just like a little fuck you word. I like that about it. You know, we don't need marketing gurus to tell us if it's bad or not, because every year it seems like it's just becoming more and more of a meme. And then people go back to the original literature and realize that it's not at all like a austerity argument. It's not at all a 
primitivist argument. It's not at all about reducing global population or whatever. It's a very cohesive, well-developed idea of how we can move beyond the current impasse in a non-anti-modern way, in a positive way. I was imagining a future where Coca-Cola's hand is forced by mass public sentiment that they must include a commitment to degrowth in their investor meeting plans and their their marketing. I guess any sort of word can be co-opted and taken over if you just change what it means mm-hmm. and start using it a different way. Mm-hmm. But yeah, no, I like that about degrowth also. In the current moment of it being, it's a provocative word, but also it's an analytically concise word, I think, too. It's not just some arbitrary term. The name really does get at the point. Mm-hmm. It's like an analytical term. Mm-hmm. I would assume it's an analytical term before it's a communicative term. Like, yeah. it wasn't designed with like, how are we going to run a PR campaign for these ideas? It's like the terminology co-developed in grappling with the external world. Mm-hmm. So a little bit about the history, I think, is kind of maybe useful here. Is So the first time the word degrowth really became... A slogan people ever used before it was just kind of a term that was mentioned but not really picked up was in the cover of a magazine which was basically the french adbusters magazine and the title was for a sustainable degrowth and it was just this like middle finger to the sustainable development discourse at the time it was linking you know a critique of neoliberalism with a critique of structural adjustment in the global south it centered social justice from the very beginning. But also it kind of took its cue from, and we talk a little bit about this, it took its cue from the situationists who had this idea of using capitalist ideology and turning it against itself. So there you have like cultural jamming where you change advertisements to have an opposite message. I think degrowth is a bit of a culture jamming word itself. And that's its root is just to use capitalist ideology against itself and that allows it to travel usually the opposite of growth would be like shrinkage the 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 future is shrinkage Mm -hmm. would have a different vibe (laughs) yeah and also you know why do we have to be positive all the time why does everything have to have you have to be able to sell it you have to be able to to sell the word to everybody i mean obviously i tend to be a positive person but i think a bit of a like grumpiness can go a long way. Yeah, well, and it's something I feel like I've developed over the years. When I was first involved in politics, I was really concerned with these optics questions, I think, to a fault. Over time, I've come to realize and see and practice all the benefits of, for example, just like creating a language for having a conversation on your own terms and like challenging other people to participate in it through actually understanding it. There's so much room for that. And I even feel like degrowth is in a space where it could have a mass impact and appeal, although it is, I think, still subversive. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't know. It it seems to me there's a variety of benefits to having a variety of different types of languages in different contexts and having your own language, Mm -hmm. that your own sort of subcultural language, where you can really discuss ideas in detail with that technical precision without worrying about the the judgmental outsider eyes that are trying to like hear you in the worst possible light or whatever is just immensely valuable. Absolutely. Yeah. Like we use this, you call it as an umbrella term, which is what economist Stefania Barca calls it. She says that degrowth is like a way to have a conversation so that you can hide from the rain and you can have a conversation under this umbrella. 
Also, at the same time, I think it's like important to be humble. Like a lot of people who come to degrowth then try to extend it to everything. Like, oh, we should have a degrowth party. We should have like, I don't know, degrowth media. What we say in the book is like, we don't necessarily think degrowth will need to be like the rallying cry or the thing, like the social movement. But we think that the arguments within degrowth and that degrowth has cultivated over the last few decades should be integrated into a general left perspective and hopefully let that kind of provocation continue. But I think it's important to let it have its place amongst many other movements and concerns. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. There's this sort of like weird meta ideology where people sometimes are like, if we find the best label to identify as, <laughs> everything will fall into place. And then, yeah, you set up the political party and it's like, we're the good guys party and the good guysness <laughs> of the party makes everything work perfectly and they don't run into any of the yeah. issues of exercising power and so on. Yeah. As long as we just develop a perfect platform that's the most appealing to as many people as possible, we're going to win. Yeah. And unlike the people who use term Y, us <laughs> people in X truly realize and so on. Yeah. Yeah. No, I find that stuff kind of like embarrassing and useless. <laughs> so I appreciate the idea of degrowth being a powerful set of ideas that can be applied to the world that doesn't you know, necessarily need to be what's reflected on the flag that people are waving around the world all throughout history. Mm -hmm. Yes. <laughs> we now go to the old South North critique of growth sketch. Hello. And thank you everybody for uh, being with me here today. Since I was elected, I've been proud to oversee some of the biggest growth in our region's history. I believe strongly that that growth should be shared with every man, woman, and child within, within our great state. The growth that we experience shouldn't just go to a few guys at the top. We need green growth and we need social growth, growth for the people. That's what I campaigned on and that's what we delivered, another record year of growth. So thank you so much. And I'll, I'll go to questions from the press gallery before I get back to work. My first priority is serving the people of our great state. <clears throat> Uh, yes, I have a question. Um, isn't it true that global power asymmetries and exploitive relationships between nations means that the economic success and growth that you're touting inherently relies on the capture of foreign markets and the exploitation of resources in the developing world? Uh, that's not my understanding of that. We trade and we're partners and equals and we try to strengthen that trade. Next question. So, so you're saying we don't outsource the cost of our prosperity to an externalized other across the world. We kind of just think of them as losing the birth lottery. That's... <laughs> uh, um, I don't know about that. Um, I'll have uh, to get back to you. Uh, yes. Uh, isn't that true that the richest country's resource use is so enormous that if the entire world use as much resource as we did, it would be devastating to the uh, ecology. Don't we need to uh, change the way we live and especially the way the rich live to be without some of the amenities they're accustomed to in order to uh, bring the world into balance? Uh, look, I'm, I'm, sh I'm elected to share the growth here in, in our state. And do I want everyone to be as prosperous as us in a perfect world? Yes, I do. But I think if anything, I want to make sure we got more growth and people have more amenities. The rich, the poor, 
Everyone should have all the amenities all the time to the highest degree possible. That's my view of a growth. Share the growth. Uh, don't you think that the overconsumption of the global north is directly enabled by the dispossession of indigenous and black life and imperial wars in the global south? I, uh, I mean, war is sort of out of my jurisdiction. Uh, I think probably not. I don't know. Next question. Uh, what about climate change? Is it true that the increasing movements of flight and migration is a result of the externalization that our society in the capitalist core makes with regard to the costs of our growth and that we're being confronted with the consequences of this externalization, which is leading to uh, reactionary fascist tendencies being on the rise in our countries? Now, when I talk to people, um, you know, across the state, I'm, when I'm traveling, talking to people. Are they asking me about these core periphery distinctions? Are they asking me about the resource use of, from the developing world, economic exploitation, the use of war in the global south to establish financial arrangements that benefit us? The mom and pops, you know, people in their neighborhoods, are they asking me about this? No, no, they're not. They're, they're worried about their kids. They're worried about the cost of groceries, the cost of gas. Uh, they're worried about sharing the growth. So I'll try to get back to you on those. We'll look into these questions. This is the first time hearing any of this. But I'll just say, you know, what I was elected on, I will stand by, which is I will share the growth. I will share the growth to every man, woman, and child, senior citizen, people of color, people of different abilities. This growth is for everyone. That's, that's what I'm elected on, and that's what I'm interested in talking about here today. But I have to go before any more questions. I see you're all, all your hands are up, follow-up questions. I get it at this point, just honestly, I get it. I don't know what you want me to do, but I get it. And that was the old South-North Critique of Growth sketch. And uh, now back to our show. So I said at the beginning, degrowth is both a critique of the present, but also a visionary alternative, which is a quote from the book. What does the visionary alternative look like? What is a degrowth utopia like? <laughs> I think it comes in waves when I think about it. We also say that we're not really giving any blueprints, but here in Montreal, in every neighborhood, we have free open air swimming pools, which are a godsend during a heat wave and everyone just goes there. And to me, that's degrowth. In the Second World War, the labor government pushed for British restaurants, which fed like 600,000 people every day at almost no cost. It's just cafeterias in every single neighborhood. There's still other restaurants that you could go to, but it's just like the basic things are there. Right now, every single house on my block probably has a drill, a hammer, a coffee machine. We could just have tool libraries in every neighborhood. And apparently every hammer that exists only gets used three minutes in its whole life or something crazy like that, that would be degrowth. You get to just go to the place where you find the hammer, take it, and then bring it home for a few weeks. And, you know, that would be less materially intensive. It would be a lot more convivial. There'd be a lot of leisure involved. We would probably work a lot less. Work would be shared. There'd be less bullshit jobs, but also less bullshit industry as well. Do you think there could be such a thing as degrowth spaceships? <laughs> yes. Like, I, I mean, I'm not against space travel per se, 
I just think that today, space travel and colonization is an imperialist enterprise in general, while also just for the whims of oligarchic tech overlords. But I wouldn't say that we can't have degrowth spaceships. If you want them, you can have them. <laughs> cool. Yeah. I mean, I don't know how to get that together, but as a treat, <laughs> you can have them as a treat. <laughs> There's this whole fantasy about escaping to space and just being like, okay, the planetary boundaries are fucked. There's nothing we can do except for, <laughs> except for build some sort of escape pod, which is the mm-hmm. most ridiculous like there's so many layers why this is just a non-starter of an idea for like human civilization finding the right planet and then making it fit to our specifications when we were designed by this planet in the first place Mm -hmm. it just it makes no sense yeah and not just designed by this but like we are one with the multitudes of species and minerals that are so unique to where we are and at the same time we have mapped more of the surface of the solar system's planets than our own ocean. We have mapped all of Mars's surface and only like 2% of our ocean floor. There's a lot still here. (laughs) And yeah, there's like still an abundant earth for us. Yeah, absolutely. Well, this has been an awesome conversation and the book was great, really enjoyable read. And like I said, I'll be returning to it in the years to come for reference points and clear argumentation on things. So Yeah, thank you and your co-authors for putting this together and also for coming on our show today. Thank you so much, Sean. If people want to follow you online, is there a good internet place for people to connect with you? Yeah, I guess on Twitter. And Matthias is also on Twitter. He's much better at it than I am. Thanks again. This is awesome. We now go to the socioeconomic critique of growth sketch. Mr. President, sir, uh, uh, yes. I need to present to you two buttons, sir. You can only press one. We've only got it in the budget to press one, sir. Oh, no, no. Uh, this, this is, is one. one of those big decisions a president has to make. Two buttons can only press one. I don't envy you, sir. Uh, okay, what are the buttons? Yeah, so this first button here, that will make the GDP grow. It will continue going up and will continue to have 3% growth every year, doubling every 24 years. Well, that sounds good. GDP going up. That's important for an economy. It's kind of how the world's economies are ranked. That's very important, uh, sir. Yeah, that sounds that sounds amazing. It's a great I, button, that, sir. I'm I'm excited for that button. I'm leaning towards it. But what's the other button? The second button, sir. If you press this button, it will improve the health and well-being of all citizens and improve our relationship with the natural world, the natural world from which our society and individuals spring from, uh, the very ecology on which all life requires. Oh, ooh, that's that is tough. That because that one sounds good too. Yes, it's hard to measure though, sir. That's just one thing I want to note is that we we, we don't really measure that. Yeah, and the GDP is measured, sir. It is what we tend to measure. We love to measure. Well, that's that. how you know an, if an economy is good. Yes, sir. You can see if the economy is chugging along or not using that. Ooh, okay. Well, these are the moments that define a presidency. These are this is the tough choices that have to be made. But okay. I've made my decision. I'm going to press the first button. To raise the GDP, sir? Oh, thank you. Okay, we'll put this into action right away. We're going to continue growing the economy, continue growing the GDP, and... Hopefully that other stuff will just fall into place. Oh, it will, sir. Don't worry. It will fall into place, sir. Okay, good, good. Down the line, down the line, sir. It's for our children and grandchildren to deal with, sir. I think our children and grandchildren will thank us. Well, thank me. You probably won't be remembered, but you did good. And that was the old socioeconomic critique of growth sketch.
So that was Aaron Vanzijan. The book is The Future is Degrowth, which is co-authored with Matthias Schmelzer and Andrea Vetter. That was great. I just want to say from one Aaron to another. Aaron, recognize Aaron. I'm glad we had Aaron on the show. And Not many places in the English language you get two A's in a row. It's true. Both of you are in that, that Aaron category, the double A Aaron. Yeah, and bumps A-A-Ron. you to the top of any alphabetical list of names based on first names. You're at the top. Oh, yeah. Two A's? It's hard to beat that. Flying high. (laughs) Unless you met someone with a three A. Three A, Aaron? (laughs) Would you feel jealous if you saw that? (laughs) Uh, No, I would probably... Fucking three A, Aaron. What'd you do to deserve that third A? Two A's is unwieldy enough, honestly. I see triple A, Aaron's, quad A, Aaron. I see an all-out war of Aaron versus Aaron. Yeah, there's a kind of infinite growth in the amount of A's that people add to their errands as time moves forward. A few generations from now, it's at 100 A's. It's not a sustainable thing, folks. We got to cut down these this growth of A's. There's only so many boxes on forms. We can't fit that many A's. Maybe someone else will be at the top of the alphabetical list arranged by first name. Maybe you just have to deal with that. So yeah, that was a, that was a really great uh, interview and book, like really threaded together, braided together all these different things that are floating around in my head into a more comprehensive whole critique of growth and then strategy for how to respond and reforming society to be ecologically sound. It's really inspiring and cool. Yeah. I particularly like the term social metabolism and the framing of social throughputs, resource throughputs that our society is utilizing as the metabolism of the social organism of our society. I feel like that's a really intuitive and interesting way to think about what our society uses, what we're taking in, what we're giving out at the end, and like how to make the outputs of our society useful inputs again at the end into an ecological web with the natural world and human society. Framing it as this naturalistic process of metabolism, I feel like, is a potent metaphor. Yeah, and it feels closer to what's actually happening than when you sort of like break it down into all these different economic terms and processes. People talk about the marketplace in this very naturalistic way, even though it's socially constructed and maintained through like legal mechanisms and stuff. People often use the market metaphor for the natural world despite markets being the sort of construct. And this is sort of like the opposite, looking at the realm of production, which is typically considered part of markets or best understood through markets. And instead of applying like an ecological or biological metaphor for it, it clicks for me too. Yeah. And the economic or productivist, like it, it often ends with the consumption of a good, the idea that Okay, and then people consume the good and that's it. But when you think about metabolism, consumption is part of metabolism, but it's not the whole thing. The resources and goods we're using don't just end when we consume them. We have to think about what to do after that. It's a whole circular process that incorporates more aspects than just imagining that there's this consumption end point where the resource circularity ends. Yeah, it's funny how in like the storybook version of production and capitalism, 
you're sort of alluding to with the like it's consumed like the end the product is consumed then the garbage man is paid to come and pick up the garbage and he brings the garbage to a specific place called the garbage dump and the garbage stays there forever and we keep adding to it forever that's the story <laughs> they don't say that part out loud but that's just the it goes to the garbage place and it just keeps Infinite on growth pop. of garbage dumps until the whole world is a garbage dump and all the resources have been consumed and that's it they're in the dump now the marketplace is so incredible at meeting needs that eventually someone will be paid to take the garbage from the garbage dump and put it in space put it in the moon put it in the sun something like that i don't know the market will figure this sort of thing out it's really funny to me how the Richard Scarry book version of cartoony world, the official canon of capitalism is that the garbage just keeps piling up <laughs> and that eventually we'll innovate how to deal with it. You know, we'll figure it out. That's canon. That's capitalist canon for what happens to garbage. It just goes there. <laughs> There's a lot of great stuff in this book, more than we could get into, even if we made this episode the longest episode we've ever made. If we kept infinitely growing the episode. But just for your thought and your reflection, they propose six transformational changes to the economy. I'll just go over them quickly and we can talk about them briefly here. Democratization of the economy, redistribution and ensuring of social security, the democratization of technology, the revaluation of labor, including the valuing of care labor and the reduction of work hours, democratization of social metabolism, that is, creating democratic processes to determine what to produce and why and what to stop producing, what areas to grow and what areas to shrink, and six, international solidarity, which would include any sort of measures that help close the gap between the rich world and the developing exploited world. Those are the six broad categories they use to describe transformational changes. I find them very intuitively appealing and interesting, and they go into them in a lot more detail in the book. But we like to, near the end of the episode, bring in some positive things on the horizon. And I think the degrowth perspective does have some really beautiful utopian vistas of what is possible as an alternative to this growth-based, world-destroying system that we've all inherited. And we don't need to defend. We can just work to recreate it better. It's a fixer-upper. It's a dump. <laughs> yeah, I want to degrow the landfills, the dumps. Yeah, you want to shrink them? Shrink them, exactly. I'm an anti-garbage extremist, and I want to shrink all the landfills of the world. I believe in the future there will be no garbage. We have a quote from Noam Chomsky, friend of the show, from the book. <laughs> yeah, our sort of parasocial friend. He doesn't know he's our friend, but we think of him that way. Yeah, we've listened to him a lot, read his books and stuff over the years. So I yeah. feel like I know him, even though he doesn't know who I am. And when we asked him if he could come on the show, he said, probably not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this kind of stood out to me when I was reading, just because it is a Noam Chomsky quote, but also because it kind of gets to the heart again of some of the misconceptions about degrowth that a lot of people have that I've had in the past and that arguably in this quote, Noam Chomsky is having. A quote from Chomsky is that a shift towards sustainable energy requires growth, construction and installation of solar panels and wind turbines, the weatherization of homes, major infrastructure projects to create efficient mass transportation, and much else. The next line in the book is literally all degrowth proposals do include policies 
for the selective expansion of all of these things. So it really just hits home the idea that degrowth doesn't mean that nothing can ever grow again, but that we have to decide which things we're growing, how much, why, and for what purpose. And yeah, I think those six transformational changes really get to the heart of a lot of that stuff democratizing these areas of the economy and technology and the redistribution of power and resources, both within nations and across the globe. It's clear that in nature, sometimes things do grow. Growth is part of the total amount of possible things that could happen. But growth in particular under capitalism is an ideology that says that growth is natural, innate, and good. It's a social structure which relies on growth in order to continue with stability and perpetuity. And it's also a material process where the resources of the world are turned into throughputs and garbage at an increasing rate growing in speed over time. That is what degrowth critiques, those things. It doesn't critique the idea that there's going to be more solar panels in the future, which there almost certainly needs to be more solar panels in the future. But the growth of solar panels would be offset by shrinkage or degrowth. I prefer shrinkage. But there will even come a time, even if in the most ideal utopian society, where we'd have enough solar panels or maybe a better technology than solar panels will come along. And, you know, you can't build infinitely more solar panels either. Based on where we're at now, we do need to grow the amount of solar panels. But in a society with sufficient solar panels, we could just slow that right down. And, you know, it wouldn't be like, oh, our company's going to go out of business because we, we need to make new solar panels, even though people don't need them. Yeah, we have to create some sort of socio-political context where we have to continue making solar panels, even though we already have enough, uh, maybe by vandalizing our existing solar panels or making our solar panels so they break quickly or some other absurdities under capitalism. No, absolutely not. Eventually, there will be sufficient solar panels. Yeah, and then we'll only have to produce enough to keep up with breakage, which hopefully will be low because we'll design them to last as long as possible. And that is the facts this week with your hosts, Sean and Aaron. The facts have been yeah, presented. Absolutely. You know, because of climate change, it's still hot, even though it's October here when we're recording. And this uh, leather getup I've been wearing this whole episode is really starting to sweat. It's almost as if the climate is changing before our very eyes. What do you think, Aaron? Well, you know, I'm I'm cold a lot of the time, so wearing the leather, even in this way, it's just right for me. But I do agree that it's warmer than normal this time of year. Normally, I'd be wearing layers under the leather on top of this, but don't need that right now. But, oh, oh, if you want to contribute to our leather fund, uh, if we... <laughs> <laughs> a good uh, transition here <laughs> or if you want to contribute to the infinite growth of our patreon head over to patreon we need to buy leather and <laughs> oh no wait now i'm thinking it's a bad way to pitch it because we're just throwing those vegan dollars out we're not actually wearing leather people it was just a bit or maybe it's fake leather i'm not sure pleather made out of petroleum perfect love that <laughs> I don't want to destroy the magic. We're wearing leather, guys. We're really wearing leather. It's real leather. <laughs> and I respect and admire your commitment to veganism. <laughs> what do you think about that? Sit with that contradiction. 
But seriously, folks, it's been a pleasure. It's great to have you to spend your time and attention with us. And thank you sincerely to everyone who contributes. It makes a big difference in allowing us to do the show. We don't want it to grow infinitely, but we're not quite at the point that we would like to be in order to have the help we need to do a show that's really great all the time, frequently, and a really high quality. That's our vision. That's what we hope to do with the show. That's what we try to do now, but we've only got a small amount of us working on the show. So your contribution helps us to speed it up, increase the quality, et cetera. And we hope to grow up to a sustainable level for that in the future. We want to continue to grow right now, but eventually we would reach a level where we feel like we have enough. If we were like the biggest media company in the world at some point, seriously wrong, we, you know, most TV shows are produced by us. Eventually mm. it would be like, okay, that's enough. Yeah, 50% plus one of the world economy directed towards the production and creation of Seriously Wrong. Okay, yeah, there's a limit. That's enough. We just bought out Disney. Okay, we're good. Fine. (laughs) We're writing, directing, and starring in a new Star Wars trilogy, wherever they left off by that point. (laughs) And we're creating a relationship show where CGI young Mark Hamill gives people relationship advice after his death. Right, because we'll own the rights to his image at his that digital, point. Yeah, yeah, his voice print. And he, we're going to start a relationship advice show with him. So that's the limits to growth. <laughs> so do you want to hop on our two hogs and ride into the sunset? Oh, yeah, it's been a while since we hopped on hogs and rode away, but yeah. I feel like hog didn't mean penis as much back then, the last time we did this bit. Uh, really? I, I feel so. like hog has meant penis equally since I was a child. (laughs) No, I feel like it, well, I don't know. Maybe it's just, maybe it's just where I'm spending my time these days on Twitter, seeing the hog discourse. (laughs) Maybe there's been an uptick, but I just haven't been aware of it. I haven't actually noticed a lot of people using the word hog in either way, or even to refer to pay. I just, I haven't seen the word a lot around lately, period, I would say. Motorcycles, penises, pigs, nothing. So let's get on to our motorcycles, our hogs. No, don't get any funny ideas. It's not a wild animal, nor an enormous penis. And we're going to drive our motorcycles away in our leather jackets. Sounds good. Yeah. These are, of course, silent electric motorcycles, so you won't hear anything, but we're about to drive away. We don't believe in burning any gasoline or oil for anything we do. I was just trying to save on the sound effects budget there. Oh, no, I I support it through and through on multiple levels. Yeah, cool. All right, goodbye, everybody. Bye, here we go, driving away. Woo.